This episode is brought to you by the Arvada Center because they're kicking off their summer concert series in June. Relax under the stars at the Arvada Center's outdoor amphitheater and take in acts like Melissa Etheridge, Big Richard, Tower of Power, Preservation Hall Jazz Band, The Spin Doctors, and so much more. Concerts are scheduled for June through September. You can find a whole schedule of events and get your tickets today at arvadacenter.org. That's arvadacenter.org. Today on CityCast Denver. Freezing temps are here in Denver and will be for months, like they will be in many, many other places this winter. But many of those cities open their emergency warming centers before it gets dangerously cold, offering respite for people living on the streets or just anyone feeling a little chilly. So why aren't we? My guest today is Dr. Joshua Barocas, a medical doctor with a big idea that he says could be saving lives in Denver right now. Today is Wednesday, December 13th. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. Dr. Joshua Barocas, welcome to CityCast Denver. Thanks for having me. This is great. So you gave a presentation to city council a few weeks ago about uh, when Denver opens warming centers for people experiencing homelessness. A few council people are now working on a proposal to change the policy. What did you say or present that was so persuasive? Well, I found that oftentimes we just need a basic understanding to get the conversation going. Nobody likes being cold. Right. Nobody likes being horribly hot either, um, especially those of us that grew up in Denver. We don't do very well with that. Um, but nobody likes being cold. And so it's something that I think people can relate to. It's uncomfortable. It's scary. And beyond uncomfortable, it's painful. And nobody really likes being in pain. And people can relate to that feeling of pain. When we dig into the policy that Denver has had, which is only a year old, so if we look back two years, the warming center policy was set at 10 degrees. Meaning when the temperature reaches 10 degrees, Denver activates these emergency shelters that open to keep people warm. Exactly. And I'll just be clear, the warming shelters are not just for people experiencing homelessness. Oh. Anybody can go in. You're cold, go in. Um, But they do supply overnight housing for people. So 10 degrees is fairly cold. And when we look at the data, there's no scientifically justifiable reason for 10 degrees. We know that hypothermia can set in at temperatures 40 degrees and lower. And frostbite usually is, we, we put it at five degrees Fahrenheit. That said, certainly frostbite can happen at higher temperatures. There was a push last year uh, to get the warming centers open at higher temperatures. And um, the decision was made by folks in the city to put it at 20 degrees. I'm not an elected official. I wasn't part of those conversations. But when I look at the data that exists, there's really no good scientifically valid reason for 20 degrees either. And so when you couple frostbite, hypothermia, hurt, and we don't have a really good reason for having our temperature thresholds lower. Uh, we start to make a compelling case if data exists for something that's a little bit higher, maybe 32 degrees. And so we presented some preliminary data from a local area hospital on frostbite injuries from last winter. 
to sort of show this is what happens at this these temperatures. Yep. And actually, the data that we pulled was from a local Denver metro area hospital, and it was all frostbite. So during the 2022-23 winter, when the temperature was an average in the winter of 32.9 degrees in Denver, we found a whole host of frostbite emergency room and hospitalization visits that are effectively fully preventable, right? If we have a place for people to go in, even just for a little while at any degree temperature to warm themselves up, you decrease the chance of frostbite. And of course, those frostbite injuries are expensive hospitalizations. They last for a long period of time and they can be quite severe. So People who get frostbite, severe frostbite, oftentimes need amputation or need admission to a burn unit or an ICU because of the level of tissue damage that they have. And anybody that's been in the hospital, especially in the emergency room, that those costs are, I mean, I was in once for a couple hours and it was $26,000. Yep. When we look at the average cost of a hospitalization day in Colorado, yeah, three grand. That's average. So, of course, an ICU stay is going to be more, surgery is going to be more, burn unit is going to be more. But if you're staying for seven days, which is an average length of stay for severe frostbite, you're looking at $21,000. And we're just looking at one disease or one injury at one hospital amongst a population experiencing homelessness, right? People experiencing homelessness are not on your private insurance. So these are dollars that are being spent by Colorado taxpayers already. So we're already investing in this care. We could do it by preventing these injuries at about the same cost. I want to talk more about the cost because I think it's an interesting route to go. It makes sense sort of in this perspective of we're talking to a city about budgets, essentially. I mean, we are talking about human beings, but um, but you're saying the preventative and the uh, this outcome kind of costs the same. Tell me more about this cost approach. Sure. So first I'll say I use the cost approach because I know that we're talking to policymakers and we're trying to make a holistic decision about how to make budgetary decisions. As a physician, I don't care about the costs. Sure. <laughs> um, but I, I understand it and I understand the real world that we live in. So like I said, three grand per day average hospitalization cost in Colorado. That was done by the Kaiser Family Foundation. We found 49 encounters at this one Denver area hospital for frostbite last year. We're not even including hypothermia. We're not including other injuries that have to to do with uh, homelessness or cold. You got 49 people, an average of seven days at three grand a day. On the good end of things, that's $1.1 million over the course of the winter at one hospital. We have more than one hospital in the Denver metro area. And so when we did some very basic assumptions, you can round that assumption up to about $5 million. A conservative assumption is that a warming shelter costs about $50,000 a day to operate. 
And that's like the facilities and the and staffing, and staffing and food. Exactly. Okay. If you keep a warming center open for the duration of the winter, no start and stop, just keep it open for 90 days. That puts us at $4.5 million. So $4.5 million to keep a warming center open, $5 million just to treat frostbite in our hospitals. Those costs are coming out of our tax base anyways. We can prevent this. We have a way to prevent it. And that's where the cost analysis comes from. And I also thinking about uh, long-term effects or additional hospitalizations post that maybe complications from having had frostbite, for instance. So it could cost even more. It's hard. I see where you're saying it's like, it's all hypotheticals, but this is like what we have to look at. Yeah. And we know that amputation, there's long-term costs with amputation. We know that there's long-term costs with having received burn care, neurologic damage, et cetera. So I wanted to do sort of the most straightforward cost analysis I could. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Something I found interesting was that New York has a higher threshold for opening warming centers. They're at like 32 degrees. I don't know about other cities, but is Denver just out of step with this Totally out of step. Okay. So when we look at other major cities across the country, New York being one of them, we see 32 degrees being the usual. Denver's a little bit peculiar also because not only do we have this strange non-scientifically based threshold. But there's this caveat that the current shelter system has to be at capacity and one of the following. Either the temperature is at 20 degrees, there's a wind chill advisory or warning, or we expect two inches of snow. In New York, for example, they get a 32 degree threshold or snow, wind chill. It's not conditional on having the shelter system at capacity. The reason that that's important is while our shelter system serves an incredibly important service and function in society, not everybody who's experiencing homelessness feels comfortable for a number of reasons going to shelter. Um, And also there are a lot of restrictions in shelter with regard to coming in as families, coming in with pets, that warming shelters don't necessarily have. So you're saying the traditional shelter that we have operating right now has these regulations, but a warming shelter would not. So you could come in with your dog. Exactly. And so you're keeping person safe. They're more inclined to come in because they have dog uh, with them. And so you're protecting the person because you're protecting the dog. But I have to say... We can't guarantee people are going to use them, right? Like, what if someone says, well, we tried the warming shelters and people don't use them? How do we address that? It's a great question. Um, So I'll bring us first back to the cost. We're already spending this money. 
end of discussion, right? We're already spending this money, so it's not like we're putting more money out into the world. If we can actually get people in and prevent disease, prevent injury, then it's the same amount of money. That's number one. Number two is that people who are experiencing homelessness, a lot of them have a complex history with trauma, sure. have a complex history with um, mental illness, and trust takes time to build, especially with a very vulnerableized population. So to say, hey, come on in, it's not necessarily the end-all be-all. And I'll just tell a, a brief little story. When I was in Boston before I moved back to Denver, we were working to open field hospitals for COVID-19. And we were trying to figure out, we had a number of different spaces. We, had a, we were trying to figure out where people, how people were going to get there. They weren't necessarily right where people were um, camped out. Multiple discussions with the mayor's office and the fire department, the police department said, hey, we'll just, we'll drive them over. And while we were very appreciative of the offer, there's been a very complex history, not just in Boston or in Denver, but across the U.S. between people experiencing homelessness and law enforcement. And there was no way that we were going to get 50 people who were on the street to load into a paddy wagon to right. get over. And so I, I tell that anecdote just to sort of contextualize that people still went to the hospital. We found other ways. It took coaxing, even though it was good for their prevention and their health, it took a lot. And we already had trust with the community. When you don't have trust with the community, it takes a lot longer. So just because we don't, nobody uses a warming center tomorrow doesn't mean that they're not worth it. It means that we aren't doing a good enough job of outreach and doing a good enough job as a city overall of garnering trust. I think that's a really relatable thing, too, if we talk about just trauma or bad experiences. Maybe we've had, a, not to like oversimplify it, but if you've had a bad experience with a doctor in a doctor's office, you don't go back to that doctor's right. office or at a restaurant or something. So it's really human nature to be like, I'm not going there. It's never worked for me. But then you're, you hear from your friend, I went there. It's all right. Yep. Like it can take some time. So I, I see what you're saying where it's like, we just have to try it and give humans time to to realize this is what this thing functions as. And the experience that you're that we're relating it to, whether it's a doctor's office or a restaurant, um, you know, if you, if you get really bad food poisoning right. at a restaurant, it's traumatizing. Totally. It's not the same trauma that you're going to experience by being on the streets for 20 years, but it's still traumatizing. And it's going to take time to go back to that same restaurant yeah. um, and, and try the food again. I think that's a totally human experience. Yeah. Um, so I've heard from my harm reduction folks that sometimes their clients will use meth to stay awake and be able to walk around in freezing temps so they don't get frostbite. Um, how do you think changing this policy would affect folks who use drugs outside in the winter? Well, first and foremost, you mentioned meth. Let's first talk opioids. Sure. So because I think that there's there, there have been a, a few recent news stories a few weeks ago there were four people who were found to have overdosed. Um, it was the same weekend that it was very, very cold out. That's right. So it's important for everyone to understand that there is an association with fatal overdose and cold weather because both decrease your respiratory drive, both 
can alter your uh, sense of awareness and where you are. And and they both dull your pain. And so there is this association. And so just because somebody's overdosing in or those four uh, uh, people overdosed when it was cold out, to say that the cold wasn't a contributor, I'm not sure that we can actually say that. Now, with other drug use, meth in, in particular, you're absolutely right. Some of the uh, drugs, meth, cocaine, can help people stay awake, but they're also what are called vasoconstrictors. So yes, you might be walking around more, but you also have less blood flow to some of those limbs, and it can actually increase your chance of frostbite. Oh, wow. So it can kind of compound it almost. Absolutely. Oh, that's just, it's just another added layer, I think, of the things we're thinking about when we're dealing with keeping people from dying, you know? And, and I think that that's, we talked a lot about cost. Right, yeah. Preventing an overdose is less expensive than treating an overdose or having to deal with a fatal overdose. It's one of those sort of rare cases in health economics that says, actually, if we prevent this, it's more effective than having to deal with the fatal outcome. Now, that doesn't mean it's not going to cost money. Right. It doesn't mean that it's saving you or me thousands and thousands of dollars. It just simply means we're spending the money already. It may cost a little bit more, but on the margins, it makes sense to do this because there's the improvement in outcomes and maybe, but for, I think that the best way to say it is the bang for the buck is there. Well, Dr. Barocas, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. Spurred by Dr. Joshua Barocas' presentation, City Council members Sarah Parody and Chantel Lewis have proposed changing the threshold at which Denver opens its emergency warming shelters. Their proposal will go before a City Council committee on December 20th. We'll let you know what happens after that. And here's what else Denverites are talking about. It's year-end best of season, and we're gearing up for our annual favorite, wins and fails of the year. But this time, we need your help. We want to hear what you think were the most epic fails and most defining wins of Denver in 2023. It could be a big news story or just something big happening in your community. So call or text today and leave us a message on the wins and fails hotline at 720-500-5418. Again, that's 720-500-5418. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed this show, why not take a minute to tell your city council person about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye. You know, when I had my first starter jacket, sorry, I know that we're supposed to do this, but when I had my first starter jacket, it was a Denver Broncos starter jacket. Sick. And it, we still have it. Um, <gasps> yeah, I know. So it was, you're from Denver, right? Uh-huh. Like, So do you remember when all those kids got shot over oh, starter jackets? Yeah. I was in sixth grade, fifth grade, and I got my first Denver Broncos starter jacket in sixth grade. Um, my 
my my bubby, my grandmother, was like mortified. I was gonna say, would she let you out of the no, house? No, she it? just like <laughs> if I came over in the starter jacket, she's like, we're not going out. You're gonna. Get I'm shot. worried. I have a very morbid sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> my doctor.